This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A World to Win, The Life and Works of Karl Marx by Sven Eric Liedman and translated by Jeffrey N. Skinner. In this essential new biography, the first to give equal weight to both the work and life of Karl Marx, Sven Erik Liedman expertly navigates the imposing, complex personality of his subject through the turbulent passages of global history. A World to Win follows Marx through childhood and student days, a difficult and sometimes tragic family life, his far-sighted journalism, and his enduring friendship and intellectual partnership with Friedrich Engels. Building on the work of previous biographers, Liedman employs a commanding knowledge of the 19th century to create a definitive portrait of Marx and his vast contribution to the way the world understands itself. He shines a light on Marx's influences, explains his political and intellectual interventions, and builds on the legacy of his thought. Liedman shows how Marx's masterpiece, Capital, illuminates the essential logic of a system that drives dizzying wealth, grinding poverty, and awesome technological innovation to this day. A World to Win, The Life and Works of Karl Marx, by Sven Erik Liedman, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. So it turns out that a laundry list of modest policy solutions is not enough, as the liberal wonkocracy and consulted industrial complex have struggled to learn. It's not just that technocratic fixes around the edges spectacularly fail to meet people's needs. In failing to articulate a big-picture vision of how the world ought to be transformed, they fail to move people, either emotionally or, more concretely, to the polls. George Monbiot, my guest today, argues that the left needs a powerful new story to win power and change lives in his new book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, published by Verso. Before we get rolling... We have reached our goal of 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig and thus have completed our spring fundraising drive six weeks early. First, thank you. That's amazing. We are now on a path to putting the show on a secure financial footing for the long haul. And we're going to reinvest your contributions into the show by spending money to improve guests' audio quality. We're going to do that by trying out hiring radio people to do tape syncs, which means that they will go to my guest, wherever that guest may be, and record them while they're on the phone with me. The result will be that the guest's audio quality will be as good as mine, which means that you will have a much more pleasant experience listening to the show. We can't afford to do tape syncs for all our shows yet, but are going to start doing them as often as we can. Anyhow... Thank you again for your support. We aren't, of course, done fundraising yet, and so we still appreciate your support at patreon.com slash the dig, but you won't hear me asking for money so much, for a few months at least. Okay, here's George Monbiot, a Guardian columnist who is also the author of Feral, 
rewilding the land, sea, and human life. And Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning. His TED Talk, How Wolves Change Rivers, has been viewed more than 30 million times. George Monbiot, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. You argue that the the neoliberal story that has dominated society and politics and the economy for decades has lost credibility and that to win power and transform society, the left needs a story to replace it. Let's start with the neoliberal story. What does it say to people about who we are, where we have come from and where we're going? Well, it's often described as an economic story, but it's much more than that. It's really a description of human nature, a description, incidentally, not based in any science at all. Um, The science shows very clearly that the description is wrong. But what it tells us is that we are driven above all else by the urge to compete and grab as much power and wealth for ourselves. And that this selfishness and greed, far from being a bad thing, is actually a good thing because it um, drives people to um, compete and to excel each other um, and creates a natural hierarchy of winners and losers. In reality, what the science shows is that our primary values are overwhelmingly um, altruism, community feeling, benevolence towards other people and the rest of it. It's just a complete misdescription. But anyway, they they take this misdescription, which really goes back to Hobbes in the 17th century, and um, they then develop it to say, by encouraging these tendencies, we can run society as if it were a business. We can do away with all the things that might impede competition, such as taxation, such as public protections, such as trade tra- trade unions. Um, we, um, in fact, we, we have a duty to do so. We should not try in any way to interfere with this competition by trying to redistribute wealth because inequality is a good thing which encourages people to compete harder and therefore helps in the discernment of what they think of as a natural hierarchy of winners and losers. And um, and anything which prevents that hierarchy from forming will impede human progress and therefore impede the creation of wealth and the quality of our lives. The war of all against all, as Hobbes put it, has proved to be, until quite recently, a very compelling story to a lot of people. And your book argues that, that stories are, are powerful and are at the basis of any successful political project, whether for good or for ill, as in the Hobbesian Hayekian case. Why do stories matter so much? And what are the key features of a compelling political story? Thank you. Um, Well, we are primarily creatures of narrative. We like to tell ourselves that we have a rational approach to the world and that we weigh up the competing strands of evidence and make a decision on that basis. But it's simply not true. We don't do it like that. The way we try to make sense of the world is not the sense that a mathematician or a scientist or a philosopher would recognise. We try to make narrative sense of the world. And a narrative is a shortcut, a heuristic, for understanding the tremendous complexity 
that faces us. And even back in the Paleolithic, um, because our brains are social brains and we have to try to make sense of the incredibly rich social and ecological environment in which we found ourselves, we had to find shortcuts which could tell us roughly this is looking good or this is looking bad. If you try to process the world as streams of data and say, OK, let's look at the data coming in here and let's look at the data coming in there and let's make sense of it, you just can't do it. The complexity is overwhelming. So the narrative, the stories that we tell ourselves are the shortcuts and give us a sense of what is broadly right and wrong. So what we're looking for in trying to make sense of the world is, does this narrative make sense to me? Does it have a beginning and a middle and an end? Is there a hero in it? Is the hero going to triumph? There's all sorts of things that we are listening for in seeing whether we're going to go with that uh, approach or with, with another approach. And let's not and, forget villain. <laughs> let, well, exactly. Exactly. It needs its villain as well. And But it's not just any narrative. What you find in um, in political and, for that matter, religious transformations is that there's a single narrative structure that recurs again and again in just about every successful transformation there has ever been. And this is what I call the restoration narrative. And it seems that our minds are prepared to hear that when we're looking for something that makes sense of the social and political world. And it goes like this. The land has been thrown into disorder by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero of the story, who might be one person, might be a group of people, could even be an institution, confronts those powerful and nefarious forces and against all the odds, overthrows them and restores order to the land. This is the Lord of the Rings story. This is the Bible story. This is the Narnia story. It's a, it's a very fundamental narrative frame, but it turns out to be absolutely essential to successful politics. Now, if you look at the two great stories of the past 70 or 80 years in politics, the, the dominant stories, the first one is Keynesian social democracy, and it's framed very much in this way. The land had been thrown into disorder by the powerful and nefarious forces of the economic elite, who through their laissez-faire ideology in the Victorian and early 20th century times had grabbed the wealth that um, should have belonged to everybody, secured it for themselves, shut out other people's means of enrichment, thrown them into unemployment and debt as a result, which then caused economic crisis, which threw the land into profound disorder in the form of the Great Depression. But the hero of the story, the enabling state, supported by the middle and the working classes, would confront that economic elite um, against the odds, overthrow it, and restore order to the land in terms of powerful public services, a strong social safety net, um, and, um, and, and a greatly empowered middle and working class um, who, through government spending, would have money in its pocket, which would be able to then use to, to, to drive consumer demand and generate employment, restoring order to the land. Then when that all went wrong in the late 1970s, the neoliberals turned up with their story, which was the precise opposite in ideological terms, just the same narrative structure. And what it says is, the land has been thrown into disorder 
by the overweening power of the collectivizing state that through um, taxation and through public spending has been crushing human individuality and freedom, forcing us into conformism and creating one kind of person. And even though it may seem benign in its early stages, such as in the US New Deal or the UK welfare state, will inevitably lead to Stalinism or Nazism to, to the, down the path to serfdom. The road to serfdom, yeah. <laughs> the road to serfdom, exactly. And, um, and, but the hero of the story, the freedom-seeking entrepreneur, will carve out a space for the market confronting the, the powerful and nefarious forces of the state and against the odds will overthrow them and through market mechanisms will restore order and freedom and opportunity which had been crushed. So we've got two completely opposite stories using just the same narrative frame. And why? Because that's the one that succeeds. So neoliberalism then falls apart spectacularly in 2008, destroyed by its own contradictions. And we come forward with oh, nothing. <laughs> no new restoration story at all. We hadn't seen the need to develop one. We, we didn't realise that this is fundamental to politics, which explains why we are stuck with neoliberalism. Despite its intellectual implosion, despite its the economic, environmental, social, political chaos that it's caused, leading to the rise of a new demagoguery, filling the political vacuum that it's left, despite all that, the world is still fundamentally a neoliberal one. The, the political common sense, the, the worldview adopted by the political class is neoliberal. And, and that uh, it, because it remains the only narrative around. And, and you cannot take away someone's story until you give them another one with which to replace it. The only thing that can replace a narrative is a narrative. You can confront a narrative with facts and figures, but they're just going to bounce off and hit you in the face. We need a new story. Obama, for example, in the US certainly didn't, didn't provide a, a new story. He provided a lot of oratory and he provided i think beyond the or people always focus on his oratory but beyond that i think a a promise of of healing or coming together as sort of some uh, uh to recover from the the division and trauma of the bush years but it wasn't a new vision a new story no, no. i mean there were a lot of there were a lot of stirring words and he himself was a very inspiring um, and upstanding character, you know, obviously a good guy, but he completely failed to see that that was necessary. He completely failed to see that you need a big vision and that vision needs to be framed as a narrative, not just a narrative, but a restoration story, a particular kind of narrative. He just couldn't get that. And as a result, what we saw throughout those Obama years was slippage followed by slippage followed by slippage you know from the very beginning when he had the opportunity to put the financial sector back in its box to to um uh to to make sure that money served the people and not the people served money and he completely flunked it why because he had no framework of thought he had no vision he had no story which would tell him this is completely the wrong thing to do so you know, we end up with Timothy Timothy Geithner saying we're going to foam, 
for the, the, we're going to use foreclosures to foam the runway for the banks. We're going to use ordinary people's misery in order to ensure that Wall Street doesn't lose any of its profits. It's really shocking, a series of utterly shocking episodes. And it's because there wasn't that moral core, that framework, that vision provided by a new story. You referenced this in passing earlier, but one really poignant example of the power of stories in your book um, that you mentioned is The Lord of the Rings and Narnia. In these books, you write, we find ourselves cheering the resumption of autocracy, the destruction of industry, and even, in the case of Narnia, the triumph of divine right over secular power. <laughs> yes, it, it's amazing. I mean, what, what it shows you is just how powerful a compelling story is. Because those two stories, which are wonderfully told stories, they're absolutely brilliant, but they basically encapsulate values which we find utterly abhorrent. They, they um, conflict head on with our belief systems, and yet we go along with them. We say, yay, the hereditary, mon the hereditary monarchy has been restored. Hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> <laughs> We're back to divine right. How wonderful. Those, those people, who, those secular forces who tried to... Um, um, sort of lead an industrial revolution. They've been thrown down and destroyed, and we're back to a feudal system. Whoop, whoopee! Yeah, and 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 yet, you know, we believe none of that stuff, or most people believe none of that stuff, and and yet we we cheer it because we go with the story. There is a, a, no value system, no belief system, no facts, no figures which can confront the power of a story, well framed and well told. The story conquers all. Now. My ambition is not to tell a story which incorporates a lo load of things we don't believe and a load of values we don't hold, but to build the, that story as a good political story should be built around our values and our beliefs, to, to not only incorporate them, but to give them wings, to give them the opportunity to actually be turned into political practice and policy. That's what the powerful narrative is for. Obviously, as we've discussed, the neoliberal story has lost a lot of its credibility leading to the situation that we're in right now. But but the individualism that neoliberalism championed and champions still still shapes people's outlook on the world in a really fundamental way and frustrates efforts to break the, the dominant mold. Can you explain a bit about neoliberalism's more everyday consequences, how, yes. how it has shaped our lives? We, it has a tremendous capacity to be internalized and reproduced by us, um, partly because it provides a coherent story, which seems to make sense, uh, but partly also because through that coherent story, it has become hegemonic. So we see ourselves as we are told we are, and we, we come to believe it. And so it's not just that the rich tell themselves that they are the natural inheritors, that they are the people who, through their virtue and through their talents, have come to the top because they deserve it, um, which is, you know, can be described as a self-attribution fallacy. They, you know, completely ignore um, the money they inherited, the their friends they have, the contacts, the education they had, the rest of it, and believe that they got there through their own efforts entirely. Donald Trump being a very good example of this fallacy. <laughs> um, but it's also that the poor 
see it the other way around. And they say, we are to blame for our poverty because that story has been told so successfully that basically the poor are dissolute losers who uh, are there because they're feckless and irresponsible. And so the natural order has been established and the natural hierarchy of winners and losers has been created. And it's basically your fault. And we and and we internalize all this and and come to believe it. So, you know, if your child is obese, it's not just that they're bombarded constantly with adverts for junk food and that the school has sold off its playing fields. It's because you're a bad mum. If 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 you're poor or, or you don't have a job, it's not because of structural unemployment. It's because you're unenterprising, even if there are no jobs to be had. Um, again and again, it's all about putting the blame for forces way bigger than we are, way beyond our control, onto the individual. Um, and, and that has devastating psychological consequences because the alienation that neoliberalism fosters everywhere, alienation from each other, alienation from our work, alienation from our communities, alienation from ourselves, um, uh, coalesces into psychic rupture. And a lot of that rupture is driven um, by this, this blame culture, this sense that we should be the masters of our own destiny. We are the masters of our own destiny. So whatever happens to us is our lookout. It's our fault. And it completely ignores political and structural factors because basically neoliberalism says politics is illegitimate. It's an illegitimate sphere for making decisions. Because decisions should be made by what it calls the market through the discernment of that hierarchy, that natural hierarchy, which the market will give us because it'll tell us who the natural winners are. You can tell because they're the ones with the money. Who the natural losers are, oh yeah, you know who they are because they don't have any money. And if you try to change that at all through politics, through taxation and, and public services, which is the means by which wealth is distributed through um, public protections, the regulation of business, um, then you're interfering with that hierarchy and you're engaging in illegitimate brackets, political activities. Um, and, and so uh, it, it sort of it basically there is no resistance to that internalization and reproduction of its toxic messaging. It's a, uh a really important point because if only if it was only the rich that believed that the status quo system was legitimate then the rich would be in really big trouble yeah yeah we we've all absorbed it to you know even myself you know i've spent years contesting this stuff but i still find myself if i sort of not alert to it thinking like a neoliberal because it becomes the common sense you know it, it was the same with keynesian social democracy you know when that was the dominant narrative everyone subscribed to it even richard nixon is believed to have said we're all neoliberals now um it's contested we're all, the, we're, all Ke- we're all keynesians now oh, we're all keynesians i'm sorry i'm so sorry we're all keynesians we now. are all neoliberals now <laughs> we are, well, sorry my mistake yes quite so quite so yes we're all keynesians now and, you know even richard nixon for god's sake you know and then of course when neoliberalism became hegemonic um, everybody, Democrats, Labour, you know, the whole suite signed up to it. Bill Clinton was a neoliberal. Tony Blair was a neoliberal. It was unthinkable that the Democrats or Labour would have turned that way a few years before. But hey, they did it because it was the great dominant narrative. And we all end up 
absorbing it unconsciously because it's just there all the time and we're listening for that narrative and we're not necessarily using the rational brain when we hear it and when we process it. Your book is not super heavy on on tomes of, of political theory and it's geared towards a, a broad audience and it's ex- extremely readable. I read it, I think, in maybe three sittings, um, but it did make me think a lot about Gramsci and the idea of hegemony is that is that in the background definitely and and um he figures a lot in my thinking as does as does polanyi for that matter um uh, they've both been very influential on me but i try to wear that stuff lightly you know not not to swamp people with theory i mean i'm not a great political theorist anyway um you know i'm i'm i i i i'm constantly driven to the practical applications um, and you know what I'm really interested in is somewhere between the theory and the tactics, the sort of that that ground which says, right, let's translate what we know into things we can do, but that aren't just immediately tactical, but are strategic, are longer term, um, actually build a different system, build a, a different narrative, build a different society. But by very practical means, informed obviously by the works of, of people like Gramsci and Polanyi and Ostrom, and 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 many other great people, uh, but but constantly just trying to say, what can we do right here, right now, starting from where we are? You write that quote: "A string of facts, however well attested, has no power to correct or dislodge a powerful story," mm-hmm. and. I'm so glad you wrote that because it's precisely that, I think, that many establishment liberals seem to think is what must be done to change the current situation, to confront the the far right. And That's... that what's wrong is that these deplorable Trump voters <laughs> somehow somehow got these really bad ideas into their heads. <laughs> and if only we could show them the logic and the facts, if only if they could tune into Rachel Maddow for yeah. a solid hour. Um, and so this is a story about what's gone wrong that, ironically, like the problem it's trying to describe, is profoundly individualistic. It is so true. And, and you put it very well. And I'm afraid it's a very accurate description of the Clinton campaign and much that has gone yes. since. In fact, it's pretty depressing to see how the Democrats just have not learned that obvious lesson. A lesson, incidentally, um, um, you know, he, um, Michael Sandel, the political philosopher, said something very similar. You're not going to do it by bashing people around the head with facts and saying you're wrong. You're wrong because here, look, I've, I've got it. I've got this list of all the ways in which you're wrong. It's not going to work. It just does not work. You have to have a, an exciting, inspiring, thrilling new story to tell people. And that's what's been horribly lacking in politics for far Far too long. It's, it's it's a really depressing situation that that you know that basic lesson just gets unlearned again and again and again by people who, you know, they think they've got it all stitched up. They think they're very wise. You know, Clinton's team really thought they knew the answers, but they absolutely didn't because they missed this huge looming obvious thing that you've got to tell a good story. And so my effort in the book primarily is to sketch out roughly what that story could be. It seems to me that that's why that there's this this tired, warmed-over, zombie-like quality to centrist liberal, liberal arguments 
right now and as a corollary the fact that they the, the, the way that they they attack the left um on technocratic grounds the left doesn't have enough an, enough experience this is so true and and it's this parched desiccated dismal approach to politics basically the we know best approach to politics which is unattractive to everyone you know and people you know the only way, reason people are going to vote for a politics like that is because they fear the other side even more you know they might be totally dismayed and disenchanted with the uh, with what comes on offer from that centrist position but they say oh look the other side's really scary so we better vote for it but that is an unsustainable strategy as we've seen with formerly social democratic parties right across Europe and in the US where they just keep losing when they should be winning you know by rights it's like you know this the whole situation has been totally screwed up by by neoliberals supporting the very rich and the sort of plutocratic classes so surely at social democratic parties this should be their moment of triumph when they come to the fore but it just doesn't work like that it's not a formula where you say right we'll just um state these facts and it's all going to happen it just that is not how politics works you need an inspiring story that lights a path to a better world doesn't patronize people doesn't tell them they're idiots doesn't tell them they're bad um just says look come with us in this along this wonderful journey because we've got something really exciting for you here and the fact is that at the moment almost everyone's a floating voter sure there are some some trump supporters who you know are just totally there because they you know um basically they've always wanted someone like trump to come along and tell them that the white men are oppressed and and that women have got too much power and black people should be put back in their place and the rest of it but they're in the minority there is just a small number the majority of people who voted trump voted trump because they they're hurting because politics is not delivering for them because politics is detached from their lives and seems like the remote yabba of an elite who they've got nothing to do with because it's not telling them a story it's not telling them what they need to know it's been hollowed out and it's been hollowed out by neoliberalism paradoxically and neoliberalism has paved the way for the demagoguery that has arisen but you know this this isn't a permanent situation those voters can be reclaimed a lot of the people who voted for trump could easily have voted for bernie sanders here in the uk we had we have this um party which is almost extinct now called ukip the uk independence party which is this far right organisation which harvested a lot of labor voters um during the tony blair years because labor was offering them nothing a lot of those people have now swung back to labor now that jeremy corbyn is there offering them something i still don't think he's offering them quite the right thing I still don't think he's telling quite the right story but at least he's offering an alternative and when that alternative's on offer well people swing back round so you know far from writing people off and patronizing them and seeing them as deplorables and the rest of it we just got to make an offer which people are going to jump at and and that requires a powerful restoration story perhaps even more important than the the swing vote votes between democrats and republicans and and labor and ukip and the conservatives is swinging 
into not voting at all and then back to voting. You, you write in your critiquing kind of the triangulation politics of of, of the neoliberalized social democratic parties that that it's not just that they that led them to embrace bad policies, harmful policies in the name of pragmatism, that it ultimately warped the entire political discussion. And you write, it should not be surprising that a party offering a modified version of its opponent's policies lost the election. If people want the real thing, they vote for it. If no alternative is on offer, they do not vote at all. And and that's what we've seen, a great erosion of the political sphere, a loss of democratic credibility and reach um, and a loss of civic life. And um, and it's been very hard to motivate people to get engaged with politics because politics no longer appears to belong to us. You know, when the main political parties both basically came to see political action as illegitimate, what do politics have to offer us anymore? When politics can no longer change social outcomes, because changing social outcomes through taxation, through spending, through public protections, regulations, um, is seen as illegitimate, well, why have anything to do with politics? It doesn't offer us anything anymore. So people peel away. And you you think of what people went through to secure democracy and the incredibly... Um, uh, 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 just feckless way in which um, social democratic political parties are throwing away all those achievements and allowing democracy to be squandered. It's just depressing. I want to talk a little bit about alienation, and I promise we'll get to solutions first because I know that's the point of your book, (laughs) for solutions ultimately. Um, In your account, consumerism does a lot of the work of keeping people isolated in the system humming along. You have a lot of great lines on this. One is, we rip the Earth's living systems apart to fill the gap in our lives, yet the gap remains. And so this is a system that subjects people to this incredible isolation and atomization in the job market, in their homes, where people are alone and blame themselves for for their perceived failures. And you you write that we are are trapped in a vicious cycle of alienation and reaction. It, explain how that, that vicious cycle operates. How, how, how does alienation lead to reaction? So we're alienated comprehensively. I mean, it's sort of almost full-spectrum alienation. It's alienation from other people because we're told that um, we are an island, that we um, are... Uh, I mean, the word individual now is the word which we use for people. We used to call people people. We now call them individuals. Um, we, we can't form a sentence without saying the word personal. Personally speaking, to distinguish myself from a ventriloquist dummy, I prefer <laughs> personal belongings uh, to the kind that don't actually belong to me. And I like personal friends better than personal friends. But that's just my personal opinion, otherwise known as my opinion. <laughs> It's amazing how this totally redundant word has slipped into everything uh, because it's it's all about selfhood. It's all about uh, atomization and individuation and alienation. Um, and, um, and, And we are induced to believe that we exist in splendid isolation, um, that we are self-made men and women um, going it alone, 
um, lone rangers, sole traders, uh, that 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 um, you know, being alone is the most noble state that that um, that that we can aspire to. But the reality is that we are the hyper-social mammal. There is only one mammal which is has got a more intense social life than ours, and that's the naked mole rat. But we probably won't have time to go into that right now. Uh, I thought you were going to mention bonobos. <laughs> no, but, uh, yeah, bonobos, um, arguably, but their, their social um, life is, is restricted to a fairly small number of acquaintances, whereas you know ours, ours seems to have a remarkable capacity to keep on expanding but we are super social our minds are social minds we 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 can't really form a mind without the engagement of other people and when we're cut off from the social mind um we fall apart we literally fall apart um and that's why solitary confinement is such a powerful form of torture um and and so here we are being told we should be apart when we can't live apart we can't manage we we can't survive it and there's some fascinating and horrifying data about the impacts of loneliness on not just our psychological health but also our physical health it turns out that being chronically lonely is as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day it's as bad for you in terms of physical health so sorry twice as bad for you as being obese it's really, really bad news. It does you in because it raises levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, which um, then um, reduces the function of your immune system. Um, and, and, and we just are not adapted to live alone. And yet we're told we are alone and should be alone. And that's a desirable state. Well, this is almost the ultimate alienation, where we become alienated from our own social selves from our own minds from our own capacity to find happiness and and contentment um and and so it leads to this psychic rupture which is is the sort of ultimate destination of of so many of the problems that neoliberal neoliberalism has imposed on us um and so um that then helps to drive us even further away from the social solutions which are at the heart of all effective politics you know if, if you're going to change the world you have to do it in conjunction with lots of other people you cannot be politically effective or active on your own it's only by mobilizing with large numbers of people that you can reclaim politics but you know that 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 those two things, three things, socializing, mobilizing, and politics are all supposed to be outside the pale now. They're all meant to be illegitimate because it's supposed to be the market and competition which decides and the the corollary of that in your argument is that alienation and isolation lays the groundwork for reaction. How does that work? Yes, that's right. Well, um, I'm by no means the, the, the first person to point this out. Hannah Arendt um, pointed out that um, fascism arises from the dust and powder of atomized societies. It's that when people have lost a sense of community, a sense of something to which they can belong, they cast around looking for a new means of belonging. And belonging is absolutely fundamental to our well-being, a sense that we belong to something meaningful and purposeful. It's absolutely key. And with the devastation of community life, we, we, we don't find that easily. And what fascism offers is community. 
you know, you're wearing the same uniform, you're marching to the same music, if you can call it music, um, you, you, you're hearing the same speeches, you're chanting in in in, in tune with other people, you, you're, um, you're stamping your feet alongside other people, and sometimes on, on other people's heads. Um, it, it gives you this very strong sense of a coherent community, horribly coherent, uh, 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 damnably coherent, but you know there it is. It's something you you come together with a common purpose around, and and so when people don't have a benign, generous, inclusive, kind community to turn to, a cruel, exclusive community will appeal to them. The the alternative to having a generous, inclusive community is not no community at all because we can't actually cope without community. It is a cruel and exclusive community which tells you you're the dominant race and you deserve to crush everybody else. And that's fascism. Hi, this is Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, The Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology. The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how he can appreciate or even make art in the present age? What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums, and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. You write a lot about the, the role of the media as well, and, and not the obviously reactionary media like in the U.S. Fox News, talk radio, people like Rush Limbaugh. In the U.K., there are a plethora of examples of reactionary news outlets. But but you write about the more banal, everyday, depoliticized media. And you're by no means a, a techno-pessimist, which we'll, um, we'll get to your techno-optimism later in the interview. But but you argue that that social media and globalized media dissociates people from, from concrete lives and encourages us to competitively compare ourselves to other yeah. people's crafted self-presentations. So Kim Kardashian takes the place of our actual neighbors. Mm. The the hunt for 
for likes on Facebook and faves and followers on Twitter makes us evaluated like a business on Yelp as and then Donald Trump, a reality TV star, is our president. Yes. Yes, this is uh, absolutely right. I, I think that it's um, it, it's that that comparison industry, which the media is. I mean, even uh, the mainstream normal media, you know, the the, the, um, the established media um, is all nowadays about comparison. It's throwing celebrities in your face saying, look at their wonderful lives. It might be a shit life, but they're going to tell you it's a wonderful life. <laughs> um, aren't they so much richer and more famous than you are? Oh, let's have a power list. Let's see who the most powerful people are in this particular industry. What? I'm not on the power list? This is outrageous. Oh, my gosh, I must be, I'm, I must be pathetic. I must be inferior. Um, and then, of course, you move on to social media, and it's like, why has he got more followers than me? How how come they got so many likes for that that um, that posting? You know, it, it's const we're just constantly confronted with competition and comparison, which is of course you know at, at the heart of the neoliberal vision and is massively reinforced by the way we have constructed media, both social media and established media, um, and and that alienates us in a lot of very tangible ways. There's some really interesting research on this, showing that people who spend most, uh, pay most attention to celebrities are the least politically engaged, um, that uh, they're also the least engaged in community terms. So the celebrities take the place of your neighbours. You, you, you think you know these people, you think they're, you're engaged in their community, even though they don't know who you are, they couldn't give a shit about who you are, uh, but you think that 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 you know these people, and and so it seems to um, detract from the need to know the real people who live around you, and so of course that's highly depoliticizing as well as socially alienating because you can't do a darn thing without working with the people who are around you. It also, um, there's some very interesting research showing that if you have a fixation with celebrity, you're much less likely to vote and you're much less likely to volunteer. It's, it's a pernicious assault on our social minds and on our well-being. And it is everywhere. And we're constantly induced to compare upwards, to think about how much better our lives could be rather than how much worse. And I um, strongly believe that one of the absolute keys to a good life, to a satisfying and fulfilling and enjoyable life is constantly to remind yourself how much worse things could be. I might have this illness, but it could have been a much worse illness. The results showed that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, rather than, oh, if only I didn't have this illness, I'd be so happy. Um, I might not have very much money, but at least I've got some money, um, rather than thinking, I can't be happy until I'm a multimillionaire. You know, this is it, this is the thinking which drives us to despair, literally to despair, and and shown again and again to be closely associated with depression and with a whole series of psychological problems. And yet, all the time we have it thrown into our faces, this toxic comparison saying, these people have got more than you have. Look, look how famous they are. Look how many followers they've got. Um, look how many, um, uh, how much money they've got, and and this is a really terrible basis for creating a social culture. 
it's funny that you say that because one of my favorite books as a child, um, you know, it's a it's a children's book called Could Be Worse. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, no, it's just all these horrible things happening, and the upshot of each one is could be worse. And I was maybe I don't know, like eight, and my my late aunt who was very ill, she was telling me about something, and I said could be worse, and she <laughs> just burst out laughing. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, a, a, another another key feature of the this alienation industrial complex is the education system which provides such an, a, a narrow set of, of of teaching very very technocratic and you write that it sets people up for redundancy and failure and this in turn leads to a lot of the anti-expertise sentiment that pervades right-wing populism well that's right so people's first um, experience of the system is often a profoundly alienating one, not because of the fault of the teachers, but because of the fault of the system itself, which is doing a couple of things that I think are disastrous. One, assessing us along just one axis, which is a very particular kind of intelligence. It's looking for whether we pass or fail on these very narrow criteria. Now, I was lucky at school because um, I had that particular kind of intelligence that they were looking for, linear, analytical, hyperlexic. But it was only after leaving school that I realised that in other respects I was a total dunce. (laughs) You you give me an engine to mend and I just like, you know, all I'm going to do is make things much worse. You, 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 um, You know, give me any spatial task and I just can't even begin it. You know, tying my shoelaces is about the best I can do. Same with Um, me. I couldn't tie my shoelaces until embarrassingly late into my childhood. I was Velcro all the way. About 34 in my case. Uh, and and it's, you know, and then I've got a friend, you know, I've got a close friend who's, who I see as an absolute genius. I mean, he's quite remarkable. He can listen to an engine, even down the phone, and say, oh, what's wrong with it? Is this bearing here? You know, he can immediately, you know, even professional mechanics say, how the hell do you do that? You know, he's, he's just got this incredible um, spatial navigational intelligence. And he was deemed a total failure at school. You know, you've heard this story so many times, you know, people who you know are bright, but they're bright in the wrong way. They're bright in the way which isn't being assessed. And he left school at 14. And the school was glad to see him go, even though it was illegal to leave leave school at that age, uh, because by mutual consent, they had decided it was a total waste of time for him to be there. So he had no qualifications. Um, he, He had flunked every single test they'd ever given him, but it was because he was being confronted with tests that did not fit the way his mind worked. And the fact is... There are loads of different intelligences, and and there's no surprise about that because um, when we were during the evolutionary phase of our history, a group of um, hominids would would be far more likely to survive if those the members of that group saw the world in different ways, and some people could um, uh, make excellent tools, and some people could hunt very well, and um, that some people could tell the stories that informed the next generation and um, some, some people were extremely good at looking out for danger or at fighting enemies or at strategizing how to get through a long winter. 
we needed a whole load of different approaches to the world of different intelligences in order to survive. And nowadays we say, right, there's only one intelligence that's valid and everybody else with a different intelligence can go to hell. This is this is disastrous. This is a really terrible way. And if you're not, well, you you can go to hell or take um, ADHD medication. Well, exactly, exactly. So, and we sort of medicalize the fact that yeah, a, a lot of children do not are not suited to sitting behind a desk, keeping still on their backsides and being fed information. Well, surprise, surprise! <laughs> yeah, who would have guessed it? That kids don't actually like sitting still in a darkened room for for very long. And I've done some volunteering with um, an adventure learning charity, which is a wonderful thing to do, incidentally. It's really, it just affirms your faith in human beings. You know, I meet the most amazing kids who often have very harsh lives, very, very tough circumstances, but have just got this spirit and intelligence, often that isn't recognized by the system at all. And the first time I took one of these groups out, we were rock pooling on the shore. Most of the kids have never seen the sea before, never been to the countryside before. And there was one kid who just stood out, absolutely brilliant. I thought, this kid's going to be the next David Attenborough. He was just amazing. He was there at my shoulder all the time. And whenever I said, what's this? He would hazard a guess. I'd say, why is it this colour? He would hazard a guess. And it were always interesting answers. They weren't necessarily right, but they were always interesting. He was super keen. He was very bold. He was finding things, catching things, picking things up. And after a couple of hours, I said to his teacher, I said, that kid there is a genius. She said, him? I said, yeah, 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 that one. She said, you got the right one. I said, yeah, that one. He's bottom of the class. Wow. And and it's like, yeah, right, okay. So it's not his problem. The problem is not coming from him. The problem is coming from your system. And I don't blame the teacher, as I say, because you know they have to teach to the system. But but if you have, if your your system has not recognised that child's intelligence, his brilliance, even there is something seriously wrong with that system. And you know my fear is that children like that get alienated and because they're told they're stupid, they don't pass their tests, um, and then they're alienated from the whole system. They're alienated from public life. Um, and they their first experience of public life is a totally dismal one. Well, is it surprising then they're going to say the state's got nothing to offer me? Uh, oh, let's let's just not pay any taxes. Let's not have any public public services because what have they ever done for me? They've ruined my life. Well, you know, so there's that aspect. Yeah, is it, is it, is it shocking that people are cynical about a state that offers them nothing but standardized tests and then coercion when they fail? Absolutely. And worse, worse, the second aspect of where education goes so wrong is that, you know, it's basically preparing us to compete with robots. Because, you know, through the sort of rote learning, through the... The, the, the facts and figures that we have to absorb, um, we, we, we are just forced into a system which is being replaced, an employment system which is being replaced by automation. Whereas, you know, the only people who are going to survive this are people with creativity, with very good social skills, with very um, um, good imaginative skills. And those things are not being fostered. In fact, on the contrary, and I don't know about in the US, but in the British system, they're being crushed. They're being stamped out. The same. Because 
here are the list of tasks, here's a tick list you've got to fulfill, and all the children have got to follow this, tick, 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 tick. And if they don't, you have failed as a school, and we're going to put you into special measures and take away your money and sack your head teacher, um, and, and you're basically um, going to be thrown into the outer darkness. Well, you know, so all these teachers who desperately want to do creative things with the children, desperately want to discover their different in intelligences, are forbidden to do so. So not only is this system um, telling very able and intelligent children that they're idiots, um, it's also setting up even the people who do survive the system for a life of failure and frustration as we get replaced by machines. I want to turn to solutions now. Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, and there are families. Mm -hmm. Your argument, the core of your argument, I think, alongside the, the argument about offering a compelling story, is that to build a political alternative, we have to start by rebuilding society. So if I can turn my, um, if I can use that narrative structure that I was talking about at the beginning um, to, to describe um, the story I want to tell, it would go something like this. It was, the world has been thrown into disorder by the powerful and nefarious forces of people who have set us apart, who have told us that there is no such thing as society, who have told us that we um, should be lonely and single and apart from each other and fighting like dogs, stray dogs over a dustbin for whatever spoils that we can grab. And in doing so, have alienated and atomized our society, have um, destroyed the means by which we can come together to enact political change. But we, the ordinary people of the land, the heroes of the story, can combine to overthrow those powerful and nefarious forces against all the odds and build a better society, a better politics, based on the rebuilding of community, based on a politics of belonging. And we do so through creating in our own locations generous, inclusive communities in which everyone is welcome, which work together, which, which um, engage in cultural activities together, and which start to rebuild from the bottom up an active, meaningful, purposeful politics rooted in what we now know as the generous and altruistic aspects of human nature. And thereby we restore order to the land. This is something that the, the left knows how to do. It's done it in the past. You point to mm. Britain in the 1890s, and I didn't know about this. I, I, I'm aware of, of, of similar things, but this, the Clarion magazines, the socialist magazines, their, their efforts to build up a socialist social infrastructure through cycling and clubs and countryside walking clubs that were into trespassing and all sorts of other things. Popular education, um, holiday funds, um, a whole, what they realized then and this is a lesson we've forgotten, was that uh, effective community was absolutely essential to an effective politics. That, that if you were going to make people, as they saw, into proper socialists, you, you had to um, ensure that socialism permeated their lives through community activities. Well, you know, if we're going to make people into properly integrated social beings 
who can transform politics for the better and create a politics of belonging, again, it has to be rooted in community. It's something which people understood all over the world. But now we forget these lessons. We just, you know, we're horribly forgetful about what makes politics work and what makes politics fail. Um, and that uh, means that we just keep on making the same mistakes. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. We, what I suggest in the book, uh, what I talk about in the book is really the science of how to make communities work, how to make them politically active, how to transfer real power to communities, how to transfer real economic wealth to communities, and then how to basically capture the political system in order to um, then um, uh, enable new political structures which um, uh, allow basically the people to take back power. And, and, and you know, it's not just a question of working from the community upwards. You have to work from national politics downwards as well. But the two can meet in this these proliferating political communities, uh, which actually um, can um, completely transform the way that we do politics. Again, going back to what we were discussing near the beginning of the interview is contrary to how people often think political people's political opinions are formed and can be changed. You write, by reviving society through st stimulating a rich and thick participatory culture, we are likely to catalyze a transformation in outlook and attitudes. And I was discussing just this with uh, a journalist, Eric Blanc, on a recent episode about how teachers in the U.S. who may have voted for Trump are transforming their outlook, their political outlook, through the action of striking with their colleagues, not by someone berating them. What we're talking about here is the creation of political communities, the recreation of political communities. Now, I, I don't believe that's all we need to do, but it's absolutely essential. It's a necessary but not sufficient condition of a political transformation. Um, but we also need to recreate social communities, geographical communities, which, you know, there mustn't be exclusive communities, there must be communities in which all are welcome, however short a period it might be that you're living there, whatever your, your background, whatever the place you've come from, whatever your skin colour, whatever your, your belief system. Um, and again, there are ways, there's almost a science of how that can be done um, very effectively. But but we, we, we need to integrate this with a whole lot of actual tools for redistributing wealth and power. So to give you a few examples, the participatory budgeting, which started in Brazil and has been tremendously successful in giving people power over their local budgets, um, to the extent that in the Brazilian city of Porto Alegre, people have actually been lobbying to have their taxes raised because they can see how effectively their money can be used to massively transform their lives. We need to see systems like the one in Reykjavik in Iceland, where um, people basically shape the future of their city through a system of putting forward ideas whereupon other people vote on them, which are then passed to the council, which has to give them full consideration. And what we've seen is two thirds of the population of the city actively engaged in the reshaping of that city. But I think we should take this further still with the revival of the commons and particularly 
and urban commons. Uh, the commons was once, you know, the most important pillar of our, our of our economies, but it's been destroyed and degraded through privatization, through national nationalization, for that matter, as well. Um, and we've lost this distributive aspect of the economy, a, a, a part of the economy that was neither capitalist nor communist, uh, where communities owned their own resources and distributed um, the product of those resources equally among their members. And we can do this again. So to give you an example, um, the greatest source of inequality today is in property wealth. And the people who own the most um, uh, lucrative real estate in our cities are immensely wealthy, massively, unimaginably wealthy. And they harvest the wealth that has been created by other people. The reason why some locations are so valuable is that other people have paid for the infrastructure to be built for, for, uh, to them through their taxes. They've created the surrounding businesses, which have um, made this a desirable place to live. Um, they've created the, the social situation, which makes it a desirable place to live. And then the, your property owners, your real estate moguls, mop up all that wealth and say, this is now mine. Well, this is grossly unfair. Um, they're taking something which does not belong to them. And so the first step is to introduce a, a, a high rate of land value tax to reclaim that money that has been taken from us and redistribute it. Now, some of that money um, in, from the land value tax can be used to support public services in the usual way. But some of it, I believe, should be redistributed to communities. And communities would be encouraged to set up a community land trust um, and use the money to start buying land for the purposes of the community. So, for instance, they might buy some land which has got a casino on it. And they say, do we need a casino? No, that's not our primary social need around here. What do we need? Oh, affordable housing. And by that, I don't mean affordable housing. I mean affordable housing, you know, stuff which people can actually afford. <laughs> and, uh, and so they then... Um, um, say, right, well, let's knock down the casino, clear the site, and we can build a development of houses which are actually going to meet people's needs. But when I say we can build it, actually, it's not going to be the community land trust which is going to design this development or the houses on that development. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the people most in need of housing and also to people who want to buy houses, so, so basically working class and middle class people, because you want a mixed development. You don't want it just one socioeconomic bracket. You want it to, to, sort of, to spread so you don't ghettoize people. Um, and, and those people can put down a deposit to, um, to have a future house there. And we're going to bring them together and they are going to design the development themselves. They're going to do it themselves. Um, and and what we find all around the world is that when people design their own developments, they do it to far better standards than when commercial house builders come along and say, here you are, here's our standard design, which we're just plonking down on the landscape, take it or leave it. You get far more livable communities when people have done, done the design themselves. But more than that, even before people have moved onto the site, they all know each other. They've already formed a community because they've had to work together for the last two years to design the development. And so you've got this ready-made community. Now, they'll still be paying ground rent, though at a lower level, to the community land trust. 
the Community Land Trust is still receiving funds um, from government through land value taxation. So what's it going to do with that money? Well, it can buy more land and create more housing or more or, or maybe um, start um, paying for public projects, which um, the government hasn't provided. Or it could issue the money as a dividend, as a local community basic income to the members of that community. And you can suddenly see that sort of starting in one place, it can proliferate into all these really interesting directions. And what you're doing there is replacing the privatized economy and, for that matter, the state-run economy with a community economy otherwise known as a commons. It would be uh, unconscionable for me to have you on the line and not ask you about how we should go about incorporating the ecological crisis into mm. the core of this new story. And I think you, you, you argue that a big part of it is pushing past this alienating language about, of talking about the, the earth as the environment. Yes, our, our language is so wrong when we when we talk about the living planet and you know i say the living planet or the natural world or life on earth rather than the environment because that creates no pictures in the head what is the environment i can't picture the environment it's it's not a thing whereas when i say the natural world i can picture the world and i can picture the nature that lives in that world um and and that's just one example i think of where we go so badly wrong you know we talk about reserves uh, you know, as places where where wildlife is protected, uh, you know, when you t say that someone is reserved, what does that tell tell you? It's that, that person is cold and detached and removed from you. It reminds me of the old Native American joke. Um, we, we we used to like them. We used to like the white man, but now we have our reservations. Um, <laughs> it's it, you know, it's just it's completely the wrong word. And then and then we have all this horrible language in this country we talk about sites of special scientific interest you know these are our conservation areas and basically what that says is if you're not a scientist you shouldn't be interested in it it's um, not exactly lovable no it really isn't so we we need a new language which is not alienating and uh, you know if we are going to reconnect with the living world we have to use our language as a very powerful tool the last thing I want to talk to you about is the example that you close out the book with of what kind of solutions can be built. And you point to the, the Bernie campaign, mm -hmm. which used technology not for alienation, but for liberation by way of big organizing that mobilized yes. volunteers to make actual human contact targeting the entirety of the American people or attempting to contact the entirety of the American people rather than these narrow algorithmically selected slices. What did you learn and what should we all learn from the Bernie campaign? This is an incredible, incredibly powerful tool. And, you know, that one of the really depressing aspects of where the Democratic Party is going at the moment is it says, oh, Bernie lost. There's nothing to learn from him. And you say, yeah, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy started with 3% name recognition. He was completely written off by the media. He had no money, which is something of a problem if you're trying to be president of the US. But he ended up with 46% of the delegates for the Democratic nomination with 22 states in his pocket. Now, how did he do that? How did he come from absolutely nowhere to nearly clinching it? And he still had no money. Well, this is the extraordinary story of big organizing. And while Clinton was doing big money and big data, 
sector, Bernie Sanders was doing the big mobilization of people because the only thing he had was the enthusiasm of the people who wanted him to be president. And the clever people around him worked out a way of mobilizing and using that enthusiasm in ways that other people weren't able to do, partly because they didn't have the enthusiasm and partly because they led a very controlled and rigorous and stifling campaign. And basically this was uh, what the Bernie campaign worked out was that you could delegate so many of the jobs which normally are given to staffers, people you have to pay, to volunteers. And in doing so, you create a proliferating network. The more you give people, the more they want. The more you engage one lot of people, the more they're going to engage the next lot of people. Very soon, they discovered that you didn't need to train your volunteers. You could use the first lot of volunteers to train the next wave of volunteers. And so this political community would then grow and grow. And by the time they cracked it, sadly, it was about a month before the nomination process closed. But they suddenly worked out how to do this. And there'd been this massive explosion of volunteer initiatives. And you could just see the sort of intention to vote for Bernie just going suddenly, just skyrocketing. And basically, two more weeks of that nomination process, they would have clinched it. They would have wiped out the Clinton campaign. And I'm absolutely convinced that Bernie would have gone on and wiped out Trump because he was able to speak the language of feeling. He was able to talk directly to people and to feel their pain in the way that Hillary, God bless her, because, you know, she was with, within her own framework, she was doing her best, but she just was not able to do that at all. And, uh, but, you know, that incredible surge, which they created, basically, by not relying on money, not relying on staff, but relying on real people to talk to other people. Now, by the time the nomination closed, they had mobilized 100,000 volunteers who had run 100,000 public events, spoken directly to 75 million people. They reckoned within another month, they, the volunteers could have spoken to every accessible adult in America. And then there would have been no stopping them. And it's my feeling that if you combine that technique, big organizing, with a powerful new restoration story that tells us who we are, where we are, why we're in the mess we're in, how to get out of it, and that lights a path to a better world, then we win. George Monbiat, thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. George Monbia is a Guardian columnist and the author of Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, from Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that man makes his own history, but he does not make it out of the whole cloth. He does not make it out of conditions chosen by himself, but out of such as he finds close at hand. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. 
What also does that is you telling your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation running. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.